Well, good morning, church. Good to see you guys. My name is Ben Biles. I'm the college and young singles director here at the Ridge. It's my privilege to to talk to you guys today. Uh, If you are a regular here, then you guys know that we usually celebrate communion uh, before the message on the first Sunday of the month. Well, actually today we're talking about communion, so we thought it would bring more clarity to that moment if we celebrate it after we've talked about it. So just hold up a second on that, uh, we'll get there. Um, but like I said, my, my name is Ben, uh, and me and my wife, Savannah, who you guys know, because she was just singing right up here a few seconds ago, um, the, who you say I am, is, she's great, she's wonderful, um, and beautiful, and she's right there. And uh, yeah, brownie points, what's up? Um, but we actually moved from Texas to West Virginia last July to come be a part of this church. And so um, all of our life we have lived in Texas, and so all of our memories are in Texas, at least the ones that go back to childhood. And I remember this one vacation spot that my family went to when we were kids near San Antonio, essentially in the desert of Texas. And uh, it was called the Hyatt Hill Country Resort. And the Hyatt Hill Country Resort was pretty much like a desert oasis. I right, can picture that in your mind, except with more families and hotels and gigantic pools and everything you could ever want. Um, but this was the Hyatt Hill Country Resort, and I loved it so much because when we went there, I was like eight years old, and my parents just let me and my brother do whatever we wanted. It was the mid-90s. Things were different. Kids were free. It was a wonderful time for all of us. Oh, yes, I remember. Uh, And uh, so we would just go and do whatever we wanted. And I remember this one pool spot. There was this large waterfall that was a part of the ambiance of the Desert Oasis that would fall into this pool. And I just remember looking at as an eight-year-old, I mean, like, I want to jump off that thing, right? Because in my mind, this is like the height of adventure, uh, and, and I just wanted to do this. I wanted to jump off. This, would, this sounded really fun to me. And so my friend Kevin and my brother Sam and I, we journeyed to the top of the waterfall, and we get to the, the, the top, and we're at the edge, and Kevin and I are, are looking down, and we're like, man, this is a lot taller than I thought. 10 feet is huge for an eight-year-old, and I don't know if I'm brave enough. And we're looking at each other, we're like, you go, you go, no, you go, no, okay. And uh, behind us, my brother Sam is just kind of frolicking, or I don't know, moving with out grace, and uh, he's this clumsy little guy, and uh, he slips, and uh, Around us, surrounding us, the landscape was made to look desert-like, so around us are all of these cacti, full of cacti. And I'm not talking like the little cacti, the cactus that you put in your window seal next to your succulents, like the cute little ones. These are like yay high with like three-inch needles, like they're ready to go to war with us. And uh, so he slips and he's falling towards one of those things and I turn around to see him and it's like it hits this slow motion moment and it's like and he is like falling towards Cactus. And Cactus is like, come here, baby. And, uh, and he's just falling towards it and he just hits it in this full on bear hug of pain. And the cactus needle stick in him and I'm like frozen because 
I'm his big brother and uh, this is my moment to be a big brother. This is my moment to take care of Sam, to, to be the hero, but I'm just frozen here and I'm looking at Kevin and Kevin's looking at me like, what should we do? What? I don't know, we can't carry this guy. Uh, he has cactus and needles in him. And then out of nowhere, all of a sudden, uh, my dad just appears. He like pops out of the air. We hadn't like seen dad all day. We hadn't been near him. He was at a doctor's conference. He's a doctor learning about doctor stuff and we hadn't seen him. And then all of a sudden he just, boom, it's like dead since it's tingling, need to be near Cactus Boy. And then he just appears there in the moment. I was like, this is amazing. My dad has superpowers. And he picks Sam up and he just knows what to do. He picks him up and he puts him underneath his arm like a football and like Adrian Peterson. He just like starts charging down and, and he's sprinting with Cactus Boy and just pictured this moment with me. And there's this rule at pools. And they try to enforce it because the rules don't run. There's no running. Near swimming pools, and this, this rule exists for a really, really great reason, because you might slip. Now imagine you're a father with a cactus boy, and you're running, and you hit puddle, and you slip. This is exactly what happened, and he slips, and once again, slow-mo activated. And he falls on his busted knee, and he blows it out, and it's already his bad ACL torn knee, and my brother goes flying, and just, if the cactus needles weren't in deep enough, now him and his, the needles are one. It's not good. There's been better days in his life, and in this like superhero-like fashion, my dad gets up, and he's like struggling at his knees, it's hurting, he's like, I'm gonna get this boy to the bathroom. And like, he's still like this like John McClane guy, like I gotta do this, I'm gonna save the day, and he scoops up my brother, and they make it to the bathroom, and um, once again, this is a doctor's conference, and so he's, he asks the two men in the restroom, do you guys have a doctor bag with you? And it turns out they both did, wow. Um, and uh, they proceed to pick 121 needles from his body, and that night, uh, I remember my brother eating ice cream and crying. And I just thought, I've never seen anyone eat ice cream and cry with tears of sadness before. This is so conflicting. And this is a sad moment, but I love this story. <laughs> I love this story because today, it reminds me of the fact that my dad was a hero. Uh, he saved the day, he appeared out of nowhere, and he did whatever it took to get my brother to safety, to get him out of harm's way, to get the pain away from him. And I love that, because when, uh, when I grew up from that moment, I would just think back to this day. I was like, you know what, whatever happens to me in my life, no matter what, what happens, what kind of hardship I get into, uh, whatever situation I find myself in, I can always think back and remember that my dad was there for Sam, he will be there for me too. And that gave me so much security and it made me feel safe and it made me feel strong knowing that he was there. And I think that's what I love about this is that memories are able to give us strength. Right? Memories are able to give us strength. They remind us of these moments of great heroic strength. They remind us of times of great love, of peace in our lives. And when we reflect on these moments, it brings us joy. And it brings us strength. 
But I think the tendency in all of our life is that we allow the hardship and the difficulty and the trials to kind of break through all of that and they start to affect us negatively, right? We are concerned with the fact that we don't have enough. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We aren't uh, becoming the people that we wanna be. We're not doing the things where I was dreamed to do and we just focus on these negative things and we let the pain seep in and we forget the good things that we have. We forget the good things that are all around us every day. And I think the same thing is true for us and God. When we remember what God has done for us in our lives, that he has sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to rescue us from the darkness of our sinfulness, that he's already given the greatest thing to us, why would he not rescue you now? Why would he not provide for you now in this small thing once he's already done the biggest thing? Why would he not save you now? And our tendency is that we forget what Jesus has done, or at least we put it out of our mind and we let these little things get in our way and distract us, the stress and the routine of life. We tend to forget what God has done. And as we talk today, my, my takeaway for us today is that God wants us to regularly, <laughs> regularly remember that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He wants us to regularly remember this in our lives so that when we remember what Jesus has done for us, we get strength from this. And that no matter what hardship, no matter what trial you're in, no matter what you're going through at the moment, you remember this and you pull strength to press on. So let's dive into the story for this series. Tim has been going through the final week in the life of Jesus. And that's why we've called it the final week. Uh, and in this final week, probably the most important week of all of history, uh, Tim has essentially talked about the fact that Jesus is moving very intentionally. He is making statements with everything he is doing and saying, ultimately pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah that Jesus is the promised king that God has sent, that he was promised a thousand years ago and now this guy is finally here. He has shown up in Jerusalem. He is here, he is now. And so on Sunday, the first day of this week, we talked about this two weeks ago, but on Sunday, Jesus rides in on this donkey. We know it as Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday, you get Jesus riding into the gates of Jerusalem, and all the crowds are cheering, and they're shouting Hosanna, and they're reciting these psalms, because that's what they did. Uh, but all of this pointing to the fact that Jesus is this king, and he's here. He's finally entering into the capital city, and he's saying, people, I am here. I am your king, the one that God promised a thousand years ago is here, that's on Sunday, and you see this excitement surrounding this event. But then you get to Monday, 
And he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and remember, this is the place of national worship. Everyone would go here to worship God. This is the glory of Israel. It's a big deal, and while he's there, he sees throughout the temple, especially in the outer courts, these merchants and these money changers and these guys that just wanna make a quick buck off people that are worshiping there, and he is filled with zeal, the Bible says. He's filled with this anger towards this, and he throws them out of the temple, he throws their tables over, and he throws them out, essentially purifying the temple from this grief. That's Monday, and then on Tuesday, he's been teaching and speaking to the crowds, once again saying, hey, I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah, I'm the promised king, I'm here, and while he's doing that, the religious leaders of the day are gonna come up to him and remember, these are the guys that uh, have been looking for this king. These are the guys that have been searching scripture their whole life, looking for the Messiah and what this guy looks like and who this guy's gonna be. These are the guys that should know, and they're looking at Jesus, and, and they're thinking, this guy? <laughs> you? You think you are the Messiah? Like you're the son of a carpenter, right? You are from backwoods Israel. You're not even from the capital city. Add to that, you have no military experience. You have no political experience. You have not been trained. You have, not, you have no education. You haven't been to school. You think you are the Messiah? Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> we all know that God isn't a man. This isn't this isn't right, it's not you. And what happens is on Sunday, Jesus comes in as the king, by Tuesday, he's rejected. By Tuesday, he's rejected. And so Tim has gone over all of that, and if you've missed those, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. I mean, it's so crucial to what's gonna happen next week and the week after that on Easter. But now we come to Thursday of this final week, all right, we're on Thursday, this is the day before Jesus will go to the cross and so this is the day before the salvation of men, right? This is the, the, the day before this gigantic day in human history. And this is Jesus' essentially his last day, his last full day to be alive. And so in my mind, I'm like thinking, man, what is he gonna do? This is like a big day, this should be a big deal. And what he does is he celebrates the Passover meal, which it was Passover in Jerusalem at the time. And in Passover, God commanded the nation of Israel to journey to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover meal, this festival of unleavened bread. And so you have the majority of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. This historian named Josephus actually says there's about 2.5 million people in Jerusalem, which is crazy. That's a lot of people, but in order to understand what's gonna happen today, we need to go back and discover what Passover meant when it first happened. All right, so when it first happened, it happened back in Exodus 12, and Tim actually read and talked about Exodus 12 last week, but essentially this is the night before God rescues the nation of Israel from Egypt. This is the night before the Exodus. And so if you're tracking along with this book, um, God had promised Moses that he would send 10 plagues to Egypt to convince Pharaoh and his hardened heart to let Israel go. And there's been nine plagues and he's still not doing it. He's still let, he's not letting go of this nation. And so we come to plague number 10, 
the final plague, and God says, I'm gonna send the angel of death, and he's gonna sweep over the nation this night, and any house that does not have the blood of the lamb on his doorposts inside that house, the firstborn male child will die. And God commanded the nation of Israel to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And what's so interesting is that in this moment, before he rescues the entire nation of slaves, of Israelites from Egypt, God's gonna instruct them on what to eat for supper. And I think that's so interesting. In this moment, God is concerned with a meal. Right, this, is, this is before this gigantic day that will live on in history forever, the day where God shows his glorious strength, and he's telling them what to eat for supper. And this might be hard for us to understand because of all the holidays we celebrate as Americans, there's only one that really revolves around a meal, and that's Thanksgiving. Right, this, this, this awesome time, which is almost as good as Christmas, and uh, it's this time we come together, we, we celebrate, we remember that the pilgrims and the early colonists had this meal with the Native Americans, even though they were rivals for the land, they were competitors for the resources, they set aside their differences and they came together and they eat a meal, and we celebrate this holiday by decorating our houses with pumpkins, which are very inedible and almost not even a food at all. And, and then we eat turkey because sure they had those back then, yeah. And the most important thing we do to remember this hard time is that we watch American football to commemorate the, the early call. No, I'm not saying, no, I'm not saying they didn't play football. I'm just saying they forgot to write down who won and we just don't know. They probably did, I mean, why? Anyways, my, uh, so during this time, of Thanksgiving, my grandpa and our big extended family come from uh, my mom's side, 30 people. And he would have all 30 of us go around in a circle and we'd say one thing that we were thankful for over the past year. And uh, it, it became really awkward. Like this is a really awkward moment to be put on the spot and to, to put into words what you're thankful for for an entire year and everyone's looking at you and you start sweating. You're like, I don't know what to say. What's good enough in this moment? And so everyone kind of goes back to this default of, I'm just gonna be thankful for my mom or my brother or you, Sam, right? Uh, I'm thankful that you're alive and you're my life. And uh, so I'm listening to my mom, who's right before me, talk about how thankful, for, uh, how thankful she is for me and her life and, and the impact I've had in her and the blessing I am. And I'm like, oh man, I was gonna talk about Taco Bell, right? I was gonna talk about like the quesarito and how it's pulled me through 2008, right? I'm gonna focus on that blessing of that, that goodness and the fire sauce. And she's talking about my life and now my food doesn't seem as important anymore. But seriously, Thanksgiving is this time where we reflect on the past and the things that happened to us that were so great. And we pull them into the present moment. And it gives us joy. So you have this focus on the past, which brings joy to the present. And this concept is pretty much the same at Passover. Except at the Passover meal, 
there were three main elements, all of them food. Later on, more would be added. I think now there's six and uh, four glasses of wine, but in the original Exodus 12, you have three. You have uh, roasted lamb, you have unleavened bread, and you have bitter herbs. Right, you have three elements, all that have very specific meaning to the nation of Israel. And I think this part is, once again, a little hard for us to understand because when it comes to Thanksgiving, like none of our food represents anything else, right? It's just food, like we don't eat the turkey of joy or the green bean casserole of forgiveness or the cranberry sauce of salvation, right? There's no, there's no significance to that food, but here, the nation of Israel, this meal is representative of their national history. This is representative of how God saved them and chose the nation as his own. And so this first element is the Passover lamb. It's the centerpiece of the meal. And according to Exodus, it had to be a one-year-old, male, spotless, unblemished lamb. You see it here kind of smiling at you. It's the picture of innocence, right? It's, it's cute. And anyone raising animals would tell you how difficult it is to get this, right? You gotta breed for a long time, and this is a rare occurrence. And so not only is it the current pride of your flock, but it's essentially what you build the future on. And so for an agriculture society, this is a big deal to give up. This is a huge cost to give up. And every family and the nation is commanded to sacrifice a lamb. Why? Because this sacrifice makes them right with God. It is slaughtered and its blood is spilled. And according to the book of Hebrews, chapter nine, it says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So animal sacrifice in the Old Testament is always this serious reminder of the consequence of sin, which is always death, all right? The punishment for sin is, is always death. And essentially what this is doing is saying because of what you have done, this animal will now have to die. This perfect, spotless, innocent animal must shed its blood for you. Because of what you have done wrong, it now must die. And in the spilling of its blood, there is forgiveness from sins. And to modern readers, this might seem unfair, in fact, I'm pretty sure that PETA would have a really hard time in the Old Testament, right? You get a lot of things happening to animals, and so the question we all ask, or at least I ask, is but why must the innocent die for the guilty? Why not just let them pay for their own sins? That lamb didn't do anything wrong. It's innocent. But if that happened, they, Israel, and all of us would be dead because we're all guilty and we'd all have to pay the price of death. But as it is, God provides a way out of sin and death with the sacrifice of the perfect, spotless lamb. 
Josephus, the historian I mentioned earlier, same guy, recorded that in Jesus' time, over a quarter million lambs were sacrificed at Passover. A quarter million, all sacrificed, slaughtered, the blood spilled, the same building at the same time. Just imagine all of that. It's a gruesome picture, but it shows us the seriousness of sin and the price that must be paid. The second part of the meal is the unleavened bread. Unleavened is what gives, uh, and what it, it, it makes bread rise up. It gives it its texture. It makes it fluffy and yummy and delicious and all of these things. But leaven needs time to interact with the dough in order for its effect to take place. And so during the Exodus, God has them eat unleavened bread, bread without leaven or flat bread, because there was no time to let that bread rise. We don't have time for that. We are about to get out of this nation. We're about to leave. We got no time to let that bread rise. We gotta go. So the unleavened bread represents the haste or the hurry or the quickness with which Israel leaves Egypt. And I know some people in this room understand this concept probably better than other people in this room. All right, just picture this with me. You are... Uh, it's early morning, you're in bed, and you're cozy, and you're comfortable, and you're warm, and suddenly your alarm goes off, it's like and you just turn it off, because that is not the kind of day you wanna have. And you just turn it off, and you're like, I'll get up when I want to. I'm just gonna close my eyes for a second, and dream a little dream for a minute, and. And then a few minutes later, you wake up and you look at the clock and it's not just a few minutes later, it's been almost an hour and you're like, oh no, and you're filled with this dread because now you're late for work or class or school and you're, you gotta get out of here, you gotta get out of this bed and you fly out and you're just like a tornado getting ready, putting clothes on and they're like, they're like sleeves on your neck and you're like, what, I don't know, and you're just throwing clothes on yourself and you, you're running downstairs and you're like, I'm hungry and so you get a Pop-Tart and you rip open the wrapper and you just cram it in your mouth and you jump out the door and you're gone. Now that is haste, right? That is hurry, that is a quickness of eating. And I think in a similar way, that's the idea here, except they're not late for work. God's rescuing the entire nation from another nation, a very uh, dangerous nation. And they eat this meal in a hurry because they were about to leave. And they continued to celebrate how they left Egypt by eating unleavened bread. And then the third part of the meal is the bitter herbs. And I'm not talking about like cilantro, which is like good with tacos or like parsley or, you know, the good herbs. I'm talking about horseradish, right? This stuff is nasty. And I'm just gonna say, if you haven't had a good old fashioned friendly neighborhood horseradish eating contest, I just encourage you to go home today and just do that with your best friends and, and just let it ruin your life, right? And just, it's just it's nasty, it's disgusting, and it's intensely bitter. Uh, most people wouldn't even touch the stuff because it's gross. But in the Passover meal, the bitterness, the intensity, actually, of the bitterness reminds Israel of the suffering they experienced while in slavery to Egypt. 
It reminds them that at one point for hundreds of years they were slaves and they suffered and they experienced pain. But that God rescued them from that. Whoa. He rescued them from that. And this is a, a special meal only eaten once a year. Like, this isn't something you can order at restaurants. Like, yes, waiter, I'll have the Passover. Yes, I'll take the bitter herbs. Actually, leave them off. You know, you don't do that. This is a meal you celebrate at home with your friends, your family, your neighbors. And it's ultimately this meal and this element point to the fact that God is a rescuer. God is a savior. And he has been good to us in the past. He has rescued us from Egypt. And this same God is present and active now. The same savior God, the same loving, merciful God is active and moving now in my life. And so it has this past focus, it has a present focus, and what's even better is it actually has a future focus on salvation. Because things might not look great right now, Israel, things might not look so great and good, but God promised the nation that a king would come one day. And when this Messiah King came, he would establish peace in the land and make all things right. And so you have all three past, present, future in motion, all centered on God, knowing that he has been good in the past and that goodness is extending into the present and continues to go on in more and more extraordinary ways into the future. And so from the time of Exodus, through the time of Jesus, about 1,500 years or so, they're supposed to celebrate this meal together. And they didn't always do it. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Most of the time they didn't. But here now, with Jesus and his disciples, they get together in this room and they are eating and celebrating this meal. And so they're, they're eating the Passover lamb, they're eating the unleavened bread, they're eating the bitter herbs. And in the middle of this meal, Jesus is gonna stand up and do something different. He's gonna do something new. And Mark 14 says, as they were eating, he took bread, he blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and so they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. And so remember, this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross the next day, okay? He's about to go to the cross and once again, just like Passover, the night before, God is concerned with a meal. He's concerned with food again. And essentially what is happening is Jesus is getting up from their remembering of God's salvation of the nation from Egypt and he's going to institute a new meal, a new meal, something that we call communion or also called the Lord's Supper. And what he is implying here is that there's gonna be a new and better salvation. He's saying 1,500 years ago, I saved this nation from Egypt. <laughs> and if you thought that was good, just you wait for tomorrow. Because I'm about to do something that's gonna change the history of humanity forever. 
and he institutes this new meal. And essentially what he's doing is he takes this bread and he says, this is my body, breaks it. He hands it to the disciples, it's broken for you. And he takes the cup of wine, says, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Because I am going to sacrifice myself for you. And there's this new meal instituted by the Son of God. It's given to the disciples and then the entire church from across all time, all believers in Jesus. And in Luke 22, he says to do this in remembrance of me. Once again, we come back to this concept of, of memory, remembering what Jesus did. And so when we come together for communion, we come together to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. And just like Passover, each element of communion has its own meaning, right? Like I said, the, the bread is gonna represent his body. It is broken for you. And this wine, this juice, it is poured out. It is spilled for you. Because once again, Hebrews 9, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Only this time, it is not a lamb, it is not an animal, this is the Son of God. This is the blood of Jesus that is covering over your sins. And when we celebrate communion together, what we celebrate and focus on is the fact that Jesus, the perfect, spotless Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. He lived a completely innocent and perfect life, and he goes to the cross for our sins. Because our sins were deserving of death. And that payment was required of each and every one of you. But that Jesus died that death on our behalf. And when we believe in him, his sacrifice cancels out our sin and we enter into a relationship with God. We can know him for the first time where previously we were cut off because of our sin. Now we enter into this relationship and we can know the love of our God. We can know the peace and the joy and everything about our God. Now that our sins are gone, we enter into a relationship with a holy and perfect God. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover and now the com this first communion in this room, but because of how the Jewish calendar worked out, and I promise this is interesting, but in the way that the, the Passover was decided is the religious leaders would come together and they would decide on a day that it would be set. But because of the way they set their calendar, they couldn't exactly pinpoint a day, so they said for this year it's either, you can either celebrate Passover on Thursday night, like Jesus and his disciples did, or you can celebrate it on Friday, like the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, will end up doing, and pretty much the rest of the nation will follow suit with them uh, because they are the religious leaders. Um, all that to say was that the next day, pretty much the entire nation would be taking their Passover lamb 
to the temple on Friday to be sacrificed. And according to Exodus, everybody sacrifices their lamb between the hours of 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Now, Tim's gonna talk about this more next week, but when Jesus goes to the cross, he is nailed to a cross and he is hoisted up at 9 a.m. in the morning, and scripture's very specific in telling us that for six hours he suffers and is tortured and is crucified, and at the end of these six hours, he gives up his spirit. Exactly at 3 p.m., the same time the slaughter of the Passover lamb begins in the temple. And Jesus is on a cross at 3 p.m. It is finished. It is finished. And the Passover lambs in the temple are killed. This connection is more than just imagery. It points us to the fact that Jesus is our Passover lamb, that he is perfect and spotless and unblemished. He lived a perfect life and he is sacrificed for you, not just the nation of Israel, but for all of you, all the entire world that, who, that whoever would believe in him, his blood would cover their sins, would cover their sins, would wipe them out. And for believers, you might have noticed that we don't take animals to sacrifice when we go to church. Right, you don't bring a lamb with you on Sunday morning. And in case you didn't think that was weird, this is like what happens in the Old Testament. This is the centerpiece for worship is animal sacrifice. And we don't even do it at all. Have you ever wondered why? Because when Jesus goes to the cross, he dies the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sins that there would never need to be another one because this one would be sufficient for all men, for all time, and for everything they've done wrong, all right? All men, all time, and everything. His sacrifice covers time. His sacrifice covers everybody. Everything you've ever done wrong, Jesus' blood covers it. It is sufficient for all salvation. And when it comes to communion, when we celebrate it, we regularly remember what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And that 2,000 years ago, he died this death on a cross. He spilled his blood for our sins, that we could know God. He provides this way out of death, out of darkness, and into life with himself. And that God cares for you still. He loves you still. He is still pursuing a relationship with you. It didn't just end back there the moment you believe, but it continues into this present moment. He wants to continue to get to know you. And the more that we remember this sacrifice, the more we rely on God, the more that we are built up with this strength of remembering what he's done. 
that no matter what happens to you, no matter what trial, what difficulty, what hard time, whatever you're going through, when we remember what God has done, it gives us the strength to press on. It gives us hope to keep going. And if you don't know, Jesus says your savior, you've heard it here explained today that he is the sacrifice for your sins. That, that you were a sinful person, you are a sinful person, and those sins prevent you from knowing God. Because he is holy and perfect, and you are trapped in slavery to sin, and if, there, uh, if no one rescues you from that, that means you are stuck in that sin. But God does exactly that, and he sends his son as a sacrifice, broken, spilled for you, that you could know him. No matter what you've done, no matter what kind of life you've lived, God's grace is for you, the sacrifice of Jesus. Now in a few minutes, we're gonna take communion together. And in this moment, I want you guys to just focus on the fact that this bread and this juice, this is the sacrifice that Jesus gave on your behalf that this bread is his body that's been broken for you, this, this juice is his blood that is spilled for you, and let this thing that happened in the past, this event which forms our faith, bring you strength today as we remember what God has done. But communion also has this future focus, something we don't often talk about, and when it happened in Mark 14, Jesus passed out the bread, he's passed out the wine, and after they have taken it, he ends with this sentence. He says this, he says, I assure you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God. In the book of Revelation, the very end of scripture tells us this new way is called the marriage supper of the lamb when at the end of all time, Jesus will come back for us and will unite every believer from all nation, from all time, from all tribes, from all tongues together with him for all eternity and we will celebrate this with a glorious celebration that will echo for all eternity. When the church is united with Christ again in eternity. And you think you've been to some cool parties, you think you've seen some pretty weddings, you haven't seen nothing yet. Because God is preparing this for you in eternity. So in this time, remember Jesus' sacrifice in the past, know the power that provides in the present, but also focus on this future moment when Jesus is coming back to make all things right. Hebrews 9 says this, last thing I'll read, it says, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, he's already done that, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 
right? This salvation is not the salvation from sin. You already have that if you believed in Christ. Instead, this salvation is a salvation from pain. This is a salvation from suffering. This is a salvation from this broken world in which we live in now. And Jesus will come and save us from this and unite us with himself. In the book of Revelation, God says, I will wipe every tear from your eye when you are with me. All things will be made right. And we can experience God forever and ever. Amen. So in this time, the elements are gonna come and pass around the bread and the juice. And if you are not a believer, if you haven't been to church in a long time and you don't feel comfortable, just let it pass by. You don't have to take it. But if you're a believer in Christ, know the meaning of this bread and juice as a sacrifice for you, the final and ultimate sacrifice of the Passover lamb of God for your sins. So once they're all passed out, just take them on your own time. Then I will come back up here and pray for us to end our time. But before that, I'm gonna pray for us now. Father God, we're thankful so thankful for the way you've moved in our lives, the way you've shown your power over sin and death by sending your son Jesus to die as our sacrifice on a cross 2,000 years ago. And we're thankful for that. And we know it gives us salvation from sin. We know it brings us into relationship with yourself. And we pray that that would just bring us strength in the present, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trouble would let us, let that bring us strength, bring us hope. So in this moment, we remember you and what you've done through your son. And in his name we pray.